Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We shot it up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I like you, like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Our guest on this episode of Wheels Off is Eric Hawk. Like two of his bandmates in Portugal, the man, Eric hails from Alaska. His early band, The Lashes, was a really cool band that made a lot of noise before he joined up with the giant, mega, successful Portugal The Man. They're having what they call in the industry a moment, and Eric is a big part of that. He's a great guitarist and a very funny, cool guy. I'm so lucky to have sat down with him at his house. Please welcome to Wheels Off, Eric Hoff. Hello, Eric. Welcome to Wheels Off. Hi, Rhett. How are you doing? I'm really good. Cool. Uh, we are here at your home in Seattle, and it's really beautiful. Seattle and your home, both. Mm. And I'm so happy to be here. And uh, to begin with, I'll ask you what I always start these interviews with. What project are you working on right now, and how is it inspiring to you? What kind of interview is this? Yeah. What did I get myself into? Um, right now, currently, um, we... We as a band, I'm, I'm in a band called Portugal The Man, um, and the core of that band is, uh, you know, a few guys from Alaska that are in their late 30s that just recently had um, the first commercial success of, you know, their 20-year career, um, which I don't think happens particularly often. Um, so we got a little bit of pressure on us to uh, see if we can, you know, capture that lightning in a jar um, again, or at least, you know come reasonably close enough to where we don't get dropped or shelved or, you know, yeah. forgotten about. Um, so currently we're, uh, you know, spending a lot of time in rooms together and uh, showing each other ideas and writing songs and uh, trying to make a new record. And so that involves co-writing. Like you, you guys get to... You know, with... Uh, at, at the end of the day, I think John... Um, our lead singer does kind of the, the lion's share in terms of, of lifting and um, kind of gets the trump card on that. But um, in terms of figuring out what kind of record we're going to make and, you know, bringing content in, it's, it's you know, it's, it's definitely equal shelf and we're just kind of trying to throw out as many ideas as we can. Um, the thing about Feel It Still was it just, it, it happened so quick and so kind of unintentionally um, that that's kind of become the narrative with this this next record. It's like the best songs come out of just like stepping out of the room for a bit, taking a breather, you know, playing a quick line on a bass and being like, hey, that's pretty good. So your point, uh, the recording of Feel It Still was so kind of happenstance and quick and unpremeditated. It's like accidental, you know. It was, it was literally our, our lead singer taking a lead singer moment 
and stepping into the other room in the studio, being like, I got to get out of here. I got to clear my head. Picking up an old 60s Hofner bass and just doing that thumpy little bass line. And uh, our buddy uh, Asa Tacone, you know that guy? I don't. Um, I'm sure you've seen his brother Yorma uh, at some point. He was one of the Lonely Island guys. Oh, yeah, yeah, of um, course. So like the digital short SNL thing. So the, his brother Asa is very, very kind of similar to that. He's a theater kid. He's super, you know, bright and loud and happy and excitable, like all the things that were not <laughs> as like a moody, serious art rock band from Alaska. Um, so he just kind of heard that bass line and got stoked on it. He's like, let's get a, let's get a mic on it. You know, let's make a loop out of it. Like, what do you have for lyrics? Like, what do you have for this? And the first drum beat that pretty much ended up cementing the groove was Asa slapping the, the recording desk with a mic on it. And we just replaced that with like a kick and a snare sound. And that was pretty much it. You know, the song came together in uh, an embarrassingly short amount of time, 45 minutes or so. Oh, isn't that the best? And we tried changing it so many times too. Like we tried, you know, shoehorning all kinds of crazy lyrics and like profound things. And like, you know, John and Zach and I sat in a hotel room, like writing out these couplets and like, you know, it's like, <laughs> what if it had, you know, like a, a classic nineties comedy kind of line in it. Um, but ultimately like what, what he's saying in the beginning is pretty much what you hear on that recording, which is maddening. Yeah. Well, it's great. <laughs> well, clearly it works, right? It works, but God damn it. Like it kind of, it kind of, uh, you know, delegitimizes everything that you think of in terms of like what makes me an artist. Well, you and I were talking about this before we started rolling, which was the perhaps apocryphal story of Pablo Picasso mm. and the woman in the restaurant that asked him to do a sketch for her and said she would pay him whatever he thought it was worth. And he did it in five seconds and then asked for $10,000. And when she said it only took five seconds, he said, no, it took 40, 40 years. So that song may have only taken 45 minutes, right? But how long did it take for you guys to get to a point where that quickly you could trust your instincts and make something that was that successful, by which I don't mean commercially, by which I mean like as a listener, as a, the audience hearing it's going, oh shit, that is a perfect song. Well, it worked for the Marvelettes. We just stole it, <laughs> you know. Well, you didn't um, steal it. You got permission. We paid for it. Yeah. You know, um, that, that was the thing with that. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of times, um, when you're just like, you know, you've got like a, a cool rhythmic idea or a chordal idea or like a progression or whatever, um, you got to stick something in there to kind of like remind yourself of, you know, what makes this familiar or, or, you know, why this is catching my brain right now. So you'll, you'll sing a placeholder, you know, well, I'll sing, I want to hold your hand over sure. stuff or just like whatever Beatles song or whatever old Motown kind of track. And the idea is eventually like that's the inspiration and you're going to make something that's, you know, kind of out of your own book, out of your own book and with your own notes. It's 12 notes. You know, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. Um, but with that one, you know, we, we, we tried to replace that hook um, with all the ideas, like anything that you can do in that scale, you know, and yeah. just like changing, changing one note, two notes, three notes, um, which our legal team would have been really stoked on. Yeah. You know, cause then like, oh no, it's just inspired by, um, but everything that we did, like we just kept coming back to that original, please Mr. Postman hook and that's it. You know, yeah. that's the song. Um, and I think that's just kind of, you know, with the production, the sort of like Spartan minimal, minimalist thing, 
that 60s Hof- Hofner bass that just immediately sounds like Paul McCartney. You know, like everything about that song has a fresh nostalgia, I think. Um, so that hook was just, you know, it was always going to be that. Sure. Well, I hope you don't mind talking about it. I'm sure that the last year has seen a lot of conversations about this song and that hook. Um, but I do think it's fascinating. It, you know, like how many songs have you been a part of writing in your life? You've, what, hundreds? Thousands? Hundreds. Yeah, easy. So I mean, not easy, thousands. Well, 1,000 songs. Yeah. <laughs> Eric Hawk, writer of 1,000 songs. <laughs> I just hit four digits. Yeah. Um, the odometer rolls over and it just starts at zero again. <laughs> oh, my God, wouldn't that be bad? Um so we, when, I mean, just just in the band, like we we talk about this, it was you know um, I think you know somewhere around the range of like the hundred thirtieth track that the band released, you know, in wow. terms of albums and singles and all that, and that's the one that hits, you know. Um, yeah, there's a thing. It's maybe it's like the Russian roulette thing. Eventually, you're gonna maybe get it. I remember that's dark. No, but... it's, <laughs> you're gonna get it right. <laughs> oh, yeah. You win. It's like the opposite. Congratulations! Um, I do. I've always thought when, like, uh, when young songwriters will ask me about it, I'll say, "You're going to write a hundred bad songs before you write a good song, right?" And so, um, so to say that you, I'll write you a bad song right now. (laughs) (laughs) So, how? What was it like? I I know you came from Alaska, and I know you come come from a very small town, and you had sort of a. Uh, music in your family with your dad working at a radio station but mm-hmm. like what what was your path to this weird life and like was there an epiphany moment where you knew oh I'm going to be a weirdo musician spoiler alert um, I was named after Eric Clapton <laughs> my mom had it bad for Eric Clapton um, we had a fucking charcoal drawing like an etching of <laughs> Eric Clapton above our fireplace in the living room um, so you know that kind of Kind of sets a path. Um, my mom was kind of a folky. Um, we had, you know, acoustics kicking around. She had like an old Japanese acoustic, either like a K or a Univox or something like that. Um, something she, that was really hard to play. But yeah, she, I mean, she, she was like a folky. So, yeah. you know, she knew, knew the open chords. And my dad knew how to play the intro to Roundabout by Yes. <laughs> But he was a he was a really good drummer. Um, we had a Hammond B three and a Leslie, like you know, out in a out in a shed and out in the garage. Um, so he was legit. Um, you know, he he knew his pentatonics and he knew how to play a pretty sick pocket syncopated beat on his old you know Rogers wow. drum set. Um, but you know, like what, what do you do with that when you live out on the side of a mountain? You know. Did he have people he was able to play with? Yeah, I had some weird uncles, you know, like uncles yeah. and heavy quotation marks. <laughs> um, just these guys that would, you know, drink drink high life in my living room and play Skinnerd songs, you know. Um, I don't think that was my mom's favorite thing, but it definitely, you know, turned his lights on. Um, but, you know, there, there there wasn't anything really creative about it. Like, it was, you know, dad's. With guitars in the living room, like, you know, doing their best, uh, you know, Marshall Tucker band kind of thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can't you see? Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so I grew up with a drum set, grew up with that organ, and there was a guitar in the house, and I was named after, you know, so, uh, uh, you know England's fourth best uh, lead guitarist. Um, 
Do you are you a Clapton fan now? I mean, that's I don't mean to put you on the spot. I've never met him, so I'm going to say yes. Okay, that's good. yes. I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, uh, you know, I my mom was a fan of the '80s and '90s stuff too. You know. Like, yeah. So. So she celebrated his entire catalog. Celebrated the entire catalog. <laughs> Easy. But so so was there a moment where, or was it something you always knew? Like you just grew up with it. Well, I like the weird thing is there's um, there was kind of this cool competitive spirit within our high school. Again, like graduating class of seventy people or so, and I think like you know close to 10 of us have signed some kind of major label contract wow. in our lives, which is from a small town in Alaska, you know, middle of nowhere. It's super, super weird, super random. But I, I think there was kind of that hunger and just like the stories that you tell, like, I'm going to do this when I grow up, you know. Um, basically, like, there was there was a couple of kids that were real deal players and you just wanted to be better than them. You know, and we would show each other tricks and like, look at what I just learned how to do. Look at what I just learned how to do. You know, like was it a lot of you? You told me that in Alaska, you kind of had to go see whatever came through, or you you didn't have to, but you did because it was there. You had to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you were mostly met like you gravitated. Your personal taste gravitated towards metal. I mean, you're 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 a you're a Texas boy. Um, I was a huge first two albums of Motley Crue fan. Yeah, I mean Ozzy Osbourne's first solo records. I mean. I cried when Randy Rhodes died. Oh, man. I mean, I still want to get my pilot's license and everything, but geez. Are, are um, you interested in that for real? I, I actually, my first job was uh, working in, you know, my, my in our family we had like a, a Cessna, uh, I don't want to say junkyard, but basically like a Cessna workshop. Wow. Um, so I, I grew up doing cheap metal work on Cessnas and like paint prep and and taken apart parts to, to sell, you know, for salvage. Um, so yeah, definitely. Um, but the metal thing, yeah, it's, it's, it's small town. Um, you know, you just, you want to kind of like give off an air of toughness, I think, you know, like I was a super skinny, super lanky, gangly kind of sensitive kid, but I would wear like two pairs of jeans (laughs) and like, you know, a sweatshirt underneath my sweater. So I looked bigger than I was and I would listen to the heaviest stuff. Um, just, just like pretty common, I think, you know, for, for, for being like a suburban, small, extremely white (laughs) kind of isolated town. There was a lot of like Sepultura and uh, a lot of like really heavy, weird kind of stuff playing out of the car stereos. Um, but you know, I've 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 talked to Zach and John about this. Like, you always had the twelve CDs that are in your CD visor, you know, in your car, uh, where you flip down the sun visor and you've got those twelve, and those are like the heavy stuff and the cool stuff, and like maybe there's some like hip hop or you know, like Buster Rhymes, DMX, Missy Elliott, and then metal, 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 metal. Yeah. But then under the seat, you got the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so like I, <laughs> mine was always, uh, you know, I'd have like. The Pixies under there, or Oasis, or nice. you know, um, like more poppy stuff. I had a Plimsolls record that I could never show anyone. You know, but, uh, was it the one with was a Million it the, Miles Away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Such a great record, great melody, great song. Um, Boy, that's a, that's it. I mean, I would say it's a guilty pleasure, but it's not super embarrassing. I think there was. It's I mean, it was a legit now. guilty pleasure for me for sure. Like I, you know, you didn't have your windows down blasting that. 
in you know small town Wasilla. Yeah. Um, but like I, I always, I always gravitated towards pop. Like I loved Michael Penn. Like I, you know, uh, MB4 is a fucking phenomenal record. Um, like I still to this day stand by the fact that you know the first three Gin Blossoms records are perfect. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's a, those are great songs, right? Great I mean, songs. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with a song like that, where it's first chorus, first chorus, maybe a big bridge. You know, there's shit that gets stuck in your mind. Three different moments. I mean, that you know, not to not to bring it too personal and too uh, too around the way, but that's how I felt when I listened to Satellite Rides. You know, oh, thanks. Um, and like I, you know, you were you were in my radar at that point. Like my one of my favorite films kind of like when I was coming of age was Clay Pigeons. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know. Early that, Joaquin. Early Joaquin. Great Joaquin. So young. Uh, Clayburn. <laughs> Boy, that was that was an early moment of validation for us that was really oh, yeah. sweet for sure. The needle drop moment at the beginning of that. Yeah, time bomb. Movie. It was just, yeah. yeah. Oh, fuck, what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> like him hauling ass through that small town, slamming the brakes on the stoplight, almost hitting the lady in that truck. And yeah, I mean, that's... Well, thanks. That's cool. So, so I knew that song, but... but uh, Satellite Rides was a totally different thing. Like, that was, that just, at that point in my life, that was the kind of pop that I wanted to listen to and I aspired to make. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, I think that record came out maybe a year, like, a year before I signed my first record deal with my pop band. So, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate that. Cheers, you're welcome. (laughs) Uh, What was that first band? That was a band called The Lashes. Yeah, okay. Have I ever played you any of that stuff? No, I would love to hear it. And you were the front man, right? Like, you no, could... I was the, the guitarist, co-founder. Okay. Um, we, had a, we had a loud, kind of, you know, bigger-than-life lead singer character. Those um, are good and bad, one. right? Yeah. No, he's, he's great. Uh, he's, he's a dude named Ben. He's still one of my, one of my very dear friends. And he's currently uh, the manager of Grumpy Cat. Oh, cool. You know, so he just... He had that kind of energy where he's like, I'm going to take this thing and make it huge. That's awesome. Um, and it didn't matter if we were a rock band or an intramural sports team or whatever. Like, he was one of those sort of driven characters, which is a, you know, that's a good friend to have when you're an artist. And it's like a, it's, 20-ish. Well, it's, it's, a, it's almost like having a coach, which sort of leads me into the natural next question that I, that I, that I have a hard time with myself is the sort of... Um, the inner voices, the, the negative inner voices, and the, the things that you kind of have to overcome as an artist. I know, like... Crippling uh, self-doubt. Well, right. Or imposter syndrome is Ooh. something that I've dealt with a lot, and people yeah. I know. Um, I know you, when I talked to Roseanne Cash, she brought up something that I had... For some reason, I hadn't thought of it, called um, success guilt, mm-hmm. which, um, which well, is an interesting thing. Oh, Roseanne, you deserve every bit of it. Thank you. That was Drink what I up. said. <laughs> Savor it. Well, but she was talking about having gone through the Deep South when she was working on a record called The River and the Thread, and she interviewed a lot of um, like old African-American bluesmen Mm. who had never made a penny, but who had sort of invented this thing that we all make livings off of. Like, I'm I'm able to feed two kids off of it. But she was, she just kind of felt guilty about it. Like, oh my God, I've had it so easy. Mm. Um, So I don't know. I mean, what do you, what have you dealt with and how have you dealt with that in terms of the obstacles that we've I, I I think like I think it's interesting that that Roseanne's talking about that at this point in her career, like a storied, winding, 
incredible sort of like jumping from genre to genre career. That's that's really interesting. With me, it was the worst when I first started out because I, you know, I I moved I moved to Seattle with nothing, no friends, no family. Like I had a I had a a rogue bass, like one of those musician friends ninety nine dollar basses that I took apart, took the neck off, and shoved it into a duffel bag with a couple of sweaters. Um, I bought a one-way <laughs> ticket for ninety-nine ninety-five. I love that you didn't have a guitar case. You just I took know. it in half. I just fucking split it in half. I still, that's always like my first instinct too when I'm traveling with guitars. I'm like, oh, I gotta take the neck off. Wait. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I, had, I had nothing and no friends and like I, I slept in parks holding that bass a couple of times in this town. And For um, real? For real, real. Wow. Yeah. Slept in Denny Park right by the space. That immediately makes me think of Jewel and his her story of sleeping in a van, which I'm not sure was totally true. You know, but, uh, <laughs> the legend of Jewel is better than the know, reality. I don't, know, I don't know if she's going to hear this. Jewel, you're beautiful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, she is that. Oh, God. But you literally slept in parks with your Actually base. clutched my belongings and slept in the rain. Oh. And I moved in, I just hit my 19th anniversary here. Um, so I moved when I was 18. I've lived oh. here 19 years, which makes this... You know, more home than home. That's cool. Yeah, you hit that threshold. Um, but uh, so so I, I I struggled pretty hard, and then I had a pretty quick and immediate road of of success. Like the the first band that I put together, that was you know the Lashes with my buddy Ben. Uh, he was just a dude that I worked with at a retail store downtown. You know, it's like my first job, and. Uh, his guitarist had some sort of like personal conflict where he couldn't play a show that was coming up in a couple of weeks. And I was the guy that always brought my guitar to work and I would like, you know, be picking in the break room on, on lunch or whatever. Um, so he knew I could play. He didn't know what, you know, my style or aesthetic was, but he was basically, you know, ran up to me and he's like, can you learn 12 songs in a week? It's like, yeah, of course, naturally. Um, and then, you know, dot, 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 play that show, play 400 more shows, sign to, sign to a label, and uh, I was out on tour for a couple of years. But in that time, I, uh, like, he, the, the, the band had a pretty clear-cut aesthetic. It was, you know, that early, two, that early 2000s thing, so, you know, we're wearing Beetle boots, we're wearing cool jeans, like, I've got dyed hair and I've got a cool jacket. Um, and as a small town, like, you know, yokel, I'm just like constantly like, why the fuck, why me? You know, like, what am I wearing this jacket for? Why do I cut my hair like this? Like, um, and I would just have these sort of like deep existential, like, you know, kind of dread moments. Um, I don't know if it's like imposter syndrome. I think mine was like more of a full-on identity crisis, you know. But I always like I loved rock and roll. I loved all the rock and roll aesthetics. Um, but I would like look at people on album covers, and they would just be space aliens to me. I'm like that's not a person. That's a that's a fucking god. Did you have a moment where you realized that they were just people, and that like they like where you meet a hero? Yeah, I think I think that's what it is. Is like. Um, again, there's no clubs yeah. where I grew up. Sure. You know, there wasn't like bands that were touring in 15 passenger vans with trailers. That's just not a thing that happens up there. All the all the 
groups that I saw growing up flew in on private jets and either rented or freighted in all their production. Yeah. And I thought that's what you needed to be a musician. <laughs> like it was, it was, it, it took moving to a city that actually has a network of clubs and, you know, all these people helping each other out and this whole sort of industrious, like, let's make it work kind of thing. It's just like, okay, like that's, that's a career path. It's like, I, I recently just met a semi-professional golfer. Oh. That's had a wonderful career and has made money. And I was just like, I didn't know that was a fucking thing, you know? Right. And that was, that was where I was with a, like, I didn't know that you could just stay kind of broke and kind of get fed and kind of live in a van and play your songs to people. And, um, cause that just didn't exist, um, growing up. There was like one venue and it held 6,000 people. <laughs> it was like, that's the show, you know? Yeah. Like, you're not going to some, like, four-buck show, you know, um, and smoking indoors. And you're, you're younger than me, but you still had some time before the business collapsed where you were on a label, you saw budgets. We signed to a major in 2003. Wow. Turns out. Yeah. <laughs> that was really kind of the year. Woo! Yeah. yeah. Get, the house of that, cards. That last little bit of CD dollars, you know. Like Boy. Sam Goody, $17.99. That really was the year, because Napster got shut down in 01. Yeah. And then it was about two years of the world going, oh, wait. I think we signed to Lookout in 2002, and then upstream to Columbia in 2003. But, yeah. like, we we watched Lookout die. Yeah. Which was hard. I, it was such a cool thing to sign to. That was... You know, that's the, the Green Day, Op Ivy, like, the Donna. Yeah. It's like all of those cool Bay Area bands were on lookout. And, you know, they, they, they approached us. And that was kind of the beginning of the imposter syndrome. Pinch yourself. Like, is this actually happening? Yeah. Kind of thing. Um, and then, yeah, we went from there. The, the full length that we made for Lookout ended up getting put out by Columbia. And then Lookout folded shortly after that. Um, so we watched that whole operation shut down. And when we signed to Columbia, it was still, you know, this thriving, you know, privileged, wealthy, buzzy kind of thing. Um, we would go and visit the offices in Santa Monica and there's just, you know, a hundred very attractive, hustling 20 somethings running around there. And we just watched, you know, we would, cause we weren't based out of LA. We would, you know, come through every couple of months and every time we did, there'd be like, you know, 20 less people in that room to the point where a year and a half later when they weren't returning our calls anymore, we'd go and visit the offices and it was just the corners that were occupied and just tumbleweeds rolling through the center. That's so funny. But they survived because, you know, they got Dylan, they got Beyonce, they got like, you know, things that are making them money. I think with the label thing, you know, I, I'm sure our record didn't recoup. And that was just super common. They were taking risks, taking chances. And I think there was some sort of metric where one out of every 20 records Pays would, for would recoup. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which is no other business model in the I world. Know. It it's so, like, so dumb. Like, <laughs> you know, if like one out of every 20 professional high jumpers is yeah. actually good. Yeah. Like what? It's, it's psychotic. Did you have a moment in the midst of all that where, or, I mean, and maybe, you, maybe you've never had it, maybe it just happened in the last year, but where you suddenly kind of felt like, oh, okay, I know who I am, and I don't ever, that feeling of 
insecurity, does it ever go away, or is it something that kind of drives you? I mean, I mean, I, don't, I put that word in your mouth. Yeah. You didn't say you were insecure. I, I no, mean, I was sort no, of fine. projecting onto you my own. Cool question, Red. Um, yeah, we go. super a lot. cool question. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I think, I, I think going through the whole like you know, early band, getting signed, touring, getting dropped, shelving that, and then joining other bands, like finding out other ways to play music, and uh, you know, working out of studios, working with uh, like playing other instruments. Um, for a while, I played organ in this band based out of Detroit, um, just to kind of do it, you know. Um, I think the more that you can do and the more creative that you can be, you know, kind of kind of shuts that voice down a little bit. Um, That's but, funny. You say, I'm sorry to interrupt you. That's funny that you say that because that was one thing that Fred Armisen, when I talked to him the other day, um, he said that he hadn't really wrestled with that as much because... He didn't really have any success in his field until he was 32 years old. Yeah. You know, all the years that he spent just kind of in the, in a crummy band, just in shitty clubs. Yeah. That, like, at a certain point, you just you kind of know who you are, mm-hmm. and uh, and then once it does happen, you've kind of found your feet and found your, your voice. I will say, if I if I had a hit when I was 20. I'd be fucking horrible. <laughs> I would be such a shithead. Yeah. You know. Well, and, maybe it speaks to the 10,000 hours idea, right? Like, is you yeah. really got your expertise by the time you got the success. Oh, we're, you and I are well past 10,000 hours at this point, I think. So many thousands. I, I still suck, but it's fine. <laughs> I, I do what I do. Um, I don't know. I don't know. You've gotten a lot of validation. Mm, a <laughs> um, couple of pats on the back. So, finally... If you were to meet a 21-year-old version of yourself working in today's industry, mm-hmm. what would you? What advice would you give yourself? Ooh, get off the internet, kid. <laughs> <laughs> Look around. Um, I don't know. It's 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 so weird. Like I, I, I don't want to sound too precious or pretentious on this, but like I feel like my story happened for a very kind of specific purpose and reason. You know, I don't, I don't think that me now could move from a small town with nothing and no money and no friends and no family and all the naivety in the world to a beautiful, expensive metropolitan city like this and do what I did then. I think it was just a very specific kind of set of circumstances where like, you know, when I, when I moved to this town, it was, it was full of $400 a month apartments and, and artists and weirdos. And I know that still exists and I know like it's, it's around, but at, at that point when I moved, that was the mainstream. Like that's what Seattle was. It was cheap and weird and punk and queer and affordable and just bizarre and beautiful. Um, so I, I, I guess if I ran into 21 year old me now, I would be like, try and find that. You know, try and find your community. And you always hear that, like, find your tribe kind yeah. of stuff. But do you I, think that would mean a different town? Or do you think that you'd be, like, drawn into tech or some thing that, <laughs> that actually paid still? I'm not smart enough for that. <laughs> um, I, don't have that I don't have that brain. Um, no, I, I, I know it exists. And you run into it neighborhood to neighborhood, town to town. I think that's my favorite part about touring Yeah, is, you know expanding expanding that community and expanding you know your your sort of traveling family 
Um, What's your secret sleeper town? I always have a couple that I think people don't know about. I, man, I mean, so there's there's kind of that, like, base level tour question, like, what's the craziest city? Like, oh, what's the coolest okay. town? Yeah. I love something about every town, and I think that's... Okay. I think that's the key to it. Like, you know, I've got I've got my favorite spots in Richmond as much as I do in Barcelona. Um, Richmond, Virginia? Guar Bar. You ever heard of Guar Bar? <laughs> no. Ooh. See, I need something good in Richmond. Owned and operated by... Guar? Theatrical metal band Guar. That... Okay, um, see, I'll go there. Yeah. There's that. like... There's like the meat sandwich, <laughs> which is like their sausage, and the descriptions are so good in the menu. It's yeah. Like, Pork and beef cruelly ground together in a blender. <laughs> um, it's hilarious. Uh, I don't know, man. Pittsburgh. That's exactly what I was thinking, dude. It's like a it's like a, a, a dusty gray San Francisco with a incredible oh, architecture and the, all steel and oh yeah. And I, nobody sure knows. You, I'm sure you played Mr. Smalls. Oh yeah, I'm playing there in three weeks. There um, you go. Yeah. Boy, it's funny when people. Say Pittsburgh, they always think of something that it isn't. But they don't think about mountains well, and like it's got, the, it's got the word pits, yeah, in it, which doesn't, doesn't help. help. Its cause. <laughs> yeah, that's that's I think the next. You know, Portland, Nashville, Austin, everybody knows those. But exactly what I'm talking about. It's a it in in what they did there. Like again, like Millsville in there is you know former steel worker housing that's been turned into kind of an artist community. Yeah. And it's affordable, and it's cheap, and it's beautiful, and like that's what Seattle was to me at that point. So I, I mean, I think, you know, we live in this incredible world, and you know, I, I live in a city that has you know six or seven very distinct neighborhoods, and they're all at different levels, and they're all at different places, and they're all kind of informed by the people that live there and work there and want to make them what they are. Um, yeah, I would just. Again, going back to 21-year-old me, and be like, keep moving around until you find people that talk the way that you want to talk and have the conversations that you want to be a part of. I love that. Right? That's that's super useful because I think people are afraid that that doesn't exist. Yeah. And what you're telling them, I think, is it does. It's just if you're not in it right now, it's going to be somewhere else. Go find it. We, I mean, just like going back to kind of the online and the internet thing. Like, if you don't like a chat room or a Reddit thread that you're on, you leave. You, you know, you go next door. And I think like making big moves and making life changes is so scary to certain people that they'll settle for something that doesn't wake them up and doesn't stir something in them. Yeah. Um, and with me, like when I got to Seattle, like I found my people. Like I, I felt like I belonged here. Um, you know, the very the very first conversations that I had. Um, I had one set of instructions from a friend that had spent some time in Seattle before. He was like, go to a 24-hour diner that's called The Hurricane. And just, <laughs> you know, get, get some hash browns and a cup of coffee and meet some people. And that's what I did. Like, it was a, a buck 35 refillable cup of coffee that I would just sit on for six hours with all of my earthly possessions in a bag like underneath the table just sitting by myself and that's where I met everyone that eventually became you know my community in Seattle that's where it started it's like a video game right it's like it's that thing find the secret figure it out yeah I mean I got I got on the bus from SeaTac took the 174 but I had never taken a city bus in my life and I took it the wrong direction (laughs) So the 174 
makes its way to Seattle, but it also goes further south and goes through Kent and Federal Way and places like that. So I took it south, and I was just, like, looking out the window, waiting to see the Space Needle, <laughs> like, waiting to see water. And I just saw, you know, poor people's backyards. Wow. <laughs> like, I don't know if this is right. Um, but it didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think that's great advice. Be brave. Be brave. Find your people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy I got to talk to you. Thank you for making the time, Eric. All right. Yeah, my boy. Rock on. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like.